don't define yourself by the last case that you either lost or won. Believe it or not, sometimes the cases you win are harder to accept than the ones you lost. This is Francesca from the Smart Growth Rocket Podcast by TopClassEdge.com. More people than ever are making big leaps to their goals, carving their own paths, and being really successful in the process. And on this show, I talk to these bright, shiny, successful professionals and entrepreneurs to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so we can all be happier and wealthier. Hello, everyone. So today, I'm so grateful and excited to share that we have Joseph Colangelo, a Richmond Hill lawyer here with us. And with that said, Joseph, would you like to just say a couple things about who you are and what brings you here today? Uh, thank you, Francesca, for asking me to participate. So I am a lawyer and my practice is in Richmond Hill, but but my practice is actually throughout the province of Ontario as I appear in the courts throughout the province. I was called to the bar in 1978. I have a number of years of experience and my practice has been litigation. And in addition to litigation, I have done as a specific area of concentration, health law. Health law does not simply mean medical malpractice. It also includes the regulation of healthcare professionals. Uh, for a number of years, the first 25 years of my practice, I was with a very large law firm in downtown Toronto, which defended doctors. But since I left that firm, I have been largely on my own. And I have taken all sorts of cases, both from healthcare professionals and from members of the public. And those cases are not confined to medical malpractice claims, but also include claims about quality of care, which result in complaints to the various healthcare colleges. On the occasions in which I have represented healthcare professionals, I have tried to defend them in allegations of improper uh, practice, whether before the college or before the civil courts. So it has been a very mixed bag of, of practice. Because healthcare is such an important value in Canadian society, it involves a consideration also of constitutional rights, including the right to fair access to healthcare. So my practice, to some extent, has involved considering whether or not healthcare services are provided in a court with proper principles of human rights. That's a brief summary of what I've done. Thank you so much for that introduction. Now, how did you get your start in law? What led you to think this is something that I want to pursue? When I was finishing my undergraduate career, I looked at a number of options and law looked like a one of the options that I wanted to pursue. I had done some practice teaching in non-law areas during the summertime, and I did not think that teaching as a full-time occupation was really something I wanted to do. So I looked at law as an alternative. I started law school. I really enjoyed law as a subject matter and as a discipline. And as time rolled on, I became more interested in it and stayed with it. I got to say that as I got into the practice of law, we were told in my firm which had a tremendous tradition of service to the profession, that teaching other lawyers was an important part of your service to the public and to the profession. So I was asked to do some um, ad hoc teaching number of institutions, uh, including the law society and the law schools and in-house programs where my interest in teaching also inspired me to help other lawyers along the way. 
Is there such thing as a typical day for you? Is every day a little bit different or do you have pretty much a routine that you more or less follow? A typical day today differs from a typical day in the past. Right now, I do not have a full-time practice. My practice is limited to being counsel to other lawyers in cases involving trials or appeals. I do not tend to take cases directly from the public unless they are pro bono cases in which I have an interest. I'll divide the time between between days in which I am in court and days in which I am not in court. So days in which I am not in court and typically drafting court documents known as pleadings or submissions. That is a very satisfying experience, and I hope your audience understands how satisfying writing and writing well is. It is a terrific exercise, mm -hmm. and specifically because of computerization. The ability to draft an argument, refine it and refine it again, and to get it entirely focused is not only satisfying for the writer, but the judges or the adjudicators really appreciate a tight, well-reasoned, well-written argument. That is very satisfying. I tend to spend a lot of time on writing those arguments so that they are as near perfect as I can get them. When does that happen? Well, that can happen at any time of the day or night, depending upon when I am inspired to write or when I find a an inspiration or an idea that adds to the written argument, because I tend to use what's called the bottom drawer approach. I write an argument and throw it in the bottom drawer and pick it up the next morning when I'm fresh and look at it again. And it tends to look entirely different than it looked at 11 o'clock last night. So that's a non-court day. A court day today, particularly in the post-COVID era, is different. The rule now is that unless you are doing a trial or an appeal, all proceedings are done virtually. So all of the preliminary court proceedings, motions, interlocutory proceedings, which are proceedings before the trial itself, are all done virtually. COVID has taught us that we can and should do things more efficiently. So the difference between pre-COVID and post-COVID is this. If I had a motion, and motions can be serious in terms of their result, I would have to drive to the court office where the motion was being heard, get properly robed, go up to the courtroom and wait until I got heard. In the post-COVID era, I'm in my office, I have to robe, but there's a specific time that is allocated to me. And you're expected to be available for that time and finish within the time that is allocated to you for the argument of the motion. It's efficient. It works in 90% of the cases. And for the client, it's economically very efficient because you are not paying for a lawyer just simply waiting to be heard. If the hearing is live, then those are difficult days. Hearing days are days in which you're up at six and seven o'clock in the morning, getting yourself ready, getting your papers organized or your computer as the case may be, getting to the court, getting robed, getting into the courtroom, making sure you're in the right courtroom, believe it or not. <laughs> and then you start the hearing, usually at about 10 o'clock in the morning. And with a break, uh, the hearing goes to 1 o'clock in the afternoon, resumes at 2.15, goes till 4.30, and then you go home and you have to prepare for the next day. There is a problem, and the problem is that hearings are getting longer and longer, in my view, unnecessarily long. A trial of two to three days used to be quite normal 
when I was called to the bar in 1978. I don't think I've done a two or three day trial in the last 10 to 15 years. More often than not, trials are two to three weeks long. For the average member of the public, the cost is prohibitive, which raises an entirely, entirely new discussion. Is there anything that you wish you had known before you pursued a career in law? And I ask this for those in our audience who maybe they're considering law. So after looking at what's happened to me over the last 40 or so years, I guess I wish I had known how both government and industry would have reacted to the profession over the last half century. That reaction, in my opinion, is not good. And if I had known how government and industry would have responded, I probably would have been more politically active, and I don't mean running for public office, but rather more vocal in speaking out against those practices of government and industry which are contrary to access to justice. Access to justice for the middle class is largely an illusion. The middle class pays millions, if not billions of dollars in taxes and in service and product costs to government and large industry. Government and large industry have a capacity to hire very experienced, very high-priced lawyers to defend almost any claim possible, and they do. The middle class also in tax dollars pays for a very modest group of persons to obtain legal aid in a very limited number of cases. So what you have is the middle class that pays for everybody to get access to justice except themselves. That is a situation that cannot continue because if it does, it has some fairly serious implications for what is going to happen to our society. Wish I had known that 50 years ago, I would have done things differently. Is there something that our next future lawyers, is there something that they can do or that you might suggest that they could do to get more involved in this process? Absolutely. Never give up. Never give up. If you have an objective to ensure that everybody gets equal access to justice, you need to keep your eye on that target. If you aim for the target, you've got a chance. If you stop aiming for the target, you ain't got a prayer. That debate and that fight has been in existence since the revolution of thought in society in the 1960s. You cannot give it up. You cannot. If you give up, then indifference will win and the forces of superior power will succeed. The consequences for society will be serious. Powerful words. Now, shifting gears a little bit, has there been a big or memorable case that comes to mind that you can share with us? Probably the case in which I was counsel for the plaintiff, and it's called Giacomelli versus Canada. I lost that case. So a number of your viewers might say, why is this guy talking to us about a case that he lost? Case is instructive for a number of reasons. Briefly, the case of Giacomelli versus Canada was about a member of our society who was a Canadian citizen of Italian origin who was put in prison during World War II because he was of Italian origin. Under the War Measures Act, the government had free power to incarcerate without trial and without charge anybody whom it believed was an enemy alien. The problem in Giacomelli was that the government of Canada, which is heavily resourced, fought against the claim because it was brought so late in life. And the government of Canada has lots of resources. There were many government departments that informed the attorney general as to why the attorney general ought to fight back that claim for a person who had been wrongfully imprisoned so many years ago. 
the case is important because I believe it will have implications for cases involving members of the indigenous communities who were discriminated against simply because of their racial origins. In the end, the case of Giacomelli was dismissed on procedural grounds, which is disturbing. Mr. Giacomelli died in the middle of the lawsuit. And because of a very obscure ruling by the Supreme Court of Canada, his death meant that his charter rights died with him. With all due respect to the Supreme Court of Canada and anybody else, I find that kind of rule to be disturbing. In my view, just because you die doesn't mean you never had any charter rights and that those rights are not to be recognized. Your charter rights are the bundle that make up your dignity as a human being. Just because you die doesn't mean you didn't mean anything. With all due respect to the Supreme Court of Canada, and I'm old enough to say this now because I guess the older you get, the more entitled you are to uh, complain about judges, maybe. And if I get a letter from the Supreme Court of Canada about this, I'll let you know. I think that the decision in Giacomelli on that issue and the case on which it's based will eventually be reversed because it's just, in my opinion, not good law, but more importantly, it's not good policy. Giving full scope to your charter rights means giving full scope to your charter rights. If my rights were violated today, that doesn't mean they disappear if I die tomorrow. So that's why that case is memorable, even though I lost it. Now, is there anything that it takes specifically to be a successful lawyer, in your opinion? Don't define yourself by the last case that you either lost or won. Believe it or not, sometimes the cases you win are harder to accept than the ones you lost. This is a profession in which, by definition, the result is that one of two parties walks out of the court losing. Your job as a good advocate is to be able to do as good a job for one side as the other. So a good advocate is able to act for, say, the plaintiff. But she or he should have the skill set to understand that if he had to pick up the brief or the book of documents for the defendant, he could do just as good a job with the same skills. There's a certain amount of both partisanship but objectivity that you have to maintain in this profession. And at the end of the day, go home and take care of your loved ones because they will sustain you and they will enable you to get up the next day and go back into that courtroom and to give it your best. And on that note, when you aren't, let's say, toiling away your need to be in paperwork, fighting those battles, how do you like to decompress, get centered again, spend that spare time that you may, may or may not have? My spouse and I travel a lot, which is probably the best education that we both had. Both of us are students of history. And in many respects, we travel to places that we saw in history. For example, some of your viewers may recall that in the 1970s, there was a riot in the city of Johannesburg where students protested against the government, which was then a government that followed the principles of apartheid. And the security forces fired on the students on the front page of the Toronto Star. And I believe it was June 1976, there was a picture of a gentleman who was carrying a boy in his arms and the boy had been shot in the head. The students in in Johannesburg wanted one thing. They were being educated in the language of Afrikaans, but they also wanted to be educated in English. And the reason they wanted to be educated in English is that it was a way in which they could work outside of the service industry. If you only knew Afrikaans, you were typically going to be a maid or a chauffeur in a white person's home. So I remember that picture, which was iconic and was all over the press worldwide. 
when we traveled to South Africa, I walked the street from the school down to the center of town where that boy was shot. And it was just a city block. It could be a city block from any street in, in the GTA to any other. And these children just wanted one thing. We want to be educated in English. And they, they were killed for this. And it just made such an impression when I walked the area that I had read about many years earlier and saw this picture on the Toronto Star about. You can study history and then you can walk the path where history was made. And then we like to take care of our two dogs, Murray and Leo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, thank you so much for being here. Well, I enjoy talking to people who either want to be in the law or thinking about it or in the law. One of the things I do is that if someone calls me and talks to me about a problem, that's as far as it goes. It doesn't go anywhere else. Because I'm a sole practitioner now, my motto is, if you hire Joe, you get Joe. I'm the only guy who answers the phone. And as always, all of Joseph's info will be in the description. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Until next time.